Hi, guys. It is good to see you all. Last week we said, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Today I want to tell you something. He is still risen. Right? So that means our life is in him. That's why we rejoice. That's why we worship. That's why we praise him. That's why we're excited to be here. Because God is good and he is still on the throne and we serve a living God. So I am super thankful about that. Um, we're coming off of Easter and Good Friday. The good news of Good Friday is that Jesus died on the cross. The good news of Easter is that Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, our problem of sin has been eradicated. Our problem of death has been eradicated as we trust Christ by faith. It's good, good news. And as I said last week, when you think seriously about that good news, I don't know what else to do except worship. I don't know what else to do except praise him. I don't know what else to do except lift my hands, my hearts, and give him all of my praise because he is so worthy of our praise. Amen? Amen? Amen. So let me ask you this. What do you do? You don't have to answer this. This is one of those rhetorical questions. What do you do when you feel compelled to worship God? We're not all the same when it comes to this, right? We approach God in different ways. Different ones of us are wired differently. We connect to God in different ways. We, we meet him in different places. And I'm just wondering if you would think in your own mind, like how do you connect with God? How does worship work best for you? For some of us, we, we connect to God and worship through music. For some of us, we don't even think of worship without thinking of music. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit and think about how much broader the definition of worship is than just music. But I'm one of these people who, I don't know if I ever have a more intimate time with God than when I'm worshiping in music. So music is a way that I connect. Other people get really quiet and they need to be alone in a quiet place. Some people go out into nature and go on a hike or sit by a river or a babbling brook or something like that. Other people express their worship through service. I'm just gonna get out there and serve God by serving people and that's an act of worship. For other people, it's very much about um, prayer and, and sort of meditating on God's word and that kind of stuff. There are so many different ways to express worship to God. So I want to talk about that for a couple of weeks. Um, and, at, and this week, I want to begin by focusing on the subject of worship in the Old Testament. Because the idea of worship obviously is spread throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And yet, isn't it interesting that there are different ways of worship in different times, in different settings, in different cultures for different people. And today, I want us to think about the subject of worship in the Old Testament Next week, we're gonna think a little bit about the subject of worship from the New Testament. Now, I think it's probably obvious I could do a 20-week series on worship, so we're not gonna get a whole giant big picture of everything the Bible teaches on worship, but I think it's necessary for us because I don't know how you define yourself, I don't know how you think of yourself, but God created you for a relationship with him that is worship-based. You're a worshiper. And, and by the way, even those who don't know Jesus are worshipers. 
even those who don't know Christ are worshipers. We are, we are inherently, incessantly religious people. God created us in such a way that there is a knowledge of God, a need for God, a connecting point with God imprinted on every one of our hearts just because we're human. And so everyone worships. You may have an atheistic friend who says they don't worship. I promise they worship. Everyone worships. It's just a matter of who you worship and a matter of how you worship. So we're going to talk about worship because worship styles change um, from time to time and from culture to culture. So obviously the worship in the Old Testament is very different in style and form than the worship in the New Testament. And even the worship in the New Testament looks very different in style and form than our styles of worship today. And by the way, your style of worship in Southern California Protestant church looks very different than maybe somebody who's worshiping in a Greek Orthodox church this morning, or somebody who's worshiping in Africa this morning, or, or someone who might be worshiping in South America this morning. So culture has a lot to do with it, and it varies from culture to culture, from church to church, and even from person to person. But one thing that is true about biblical worship, from culture to culture, from time to time, from place to place, is that biblical worship is always supposed to be wholehearted. There's no such thing as halfway worship. There's no such, such thing as kind of worshiping. That's sort of like being kind of pregnant. Either you is or you isn't, right? But don't tell me that you're just gonna sort of dabble in worship, which by the way is what a lot of people try to do. And so I wanna dispel that idea right now because worship by definition is wholehearted. It's fascinating to even listen to some of the lyrics of some of the songs we sang this morning. I will give my life, right? This is not about I'll give you 10 minutes today. This is about wholeheartedness. We're going to talk about that. And in fact, this wholehearted worship idea, uh, we're calling it extreme worship. And the funny thing about extreme worship is that it really shouldn't be extreme. It really should be normal. It really should be what we're used to. It really should be common for us. But before we dive into any passages for today, um, we're going to need some background context in order for us to understand what I'm going to be sharing with you today. So, so let's start with a little thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, and in case you're confused, there were not two of each animal on the Ark of the Covenant. This is a different <laughs> Ark than that. Okay, the Ark of the Covenant is entirely different. And if you don't know the story, here's, here's the, the basic rundown. During the time of the Exodus, when God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, um, and they were wandering in the wilderness, God spoke to Moses and gave him some directions. And one of the directions God gave to Moses was, I want you to have the artisans construct what is going to be called the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant basically was a wooden box that was overlaid completely in gold, and it was covered with a golden lid, and that golden lid is called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there are these two golden figures of cherubim, which are winged angels. 
and their golden wings stretch upward, and that sits on the top of this box called the ark, and inside the box, under the mercy seat, there are the tablets, the literal original tablets that God gave to Moses with the Ten Commandments, and they're in the Ark of the Covenant. Along with that is Aaron's rod, which God used to do miracles over and over again. That's in the Ark. And alongside of that, there is a golden jar that is filled with manna, the manna that God sent down from heaven that he, he preserved in this jar so that uh, it could be in the Ark of the Covenant. Those are the things that we know of that are in there. And the Ark is given to the people of Israel as a tangible reminder of God's presence and, and that he's with them and, then, and that he had done great things for the children of Israel. And when the ark was placed inside the tabernacle or the temple later on, it was placed behind this very thick veil that went all the way up to the top and all the way down to the bottom. And it's behind the veil in a place called the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest place in the temple. And behind the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And then on top of the mercy seat, between the, the wings of the cherubim, the Shekinah or the manifest glory of God literally dwelt there. So God, who is spirit, manifested himself in some sort of way. I don't know what it is. I always picture it as like a glowing ball of glowing stuff. And, and, but I have no idea. Um, and, and yet God's manifest presence was there in the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant is this massively important, huge, gloriously beautiful symbol of the love of God. It's a, it's a symbol of the power of God as he delivered them and led them out of captivity. And it's a symbol of the presence of God, which is why the Shekinah or the glory of God dwells there to say that God is not just far away, but that God is in their midst, okay? Now, this is Old Testament worship. And only certain priests were allowed to ever interact with the ark, and only in certain ways and only on certain days and only after performing certain rites were they able to touch it in any way. And so it's it sort of set aside as this incredibly special thing, not because the thing itself is special, but because it is symbolic of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Sometimes, when they went into battle, the priest would carry the ark on poles on their shoulders into the battle, excuse me, and sometimes as they went into the battle, what you would find was that they didn't even have to fight. They would go into the battle with the ark, and instead of fighting, they would praise and worship God, and God would fight for them and wipe out their enemies. It's pretty awesome, right? It would be nice in our, if our military budget could afford something like this, <laughs> Right? Pretty cool. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. You can read it in your quiet times this week. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the armies of Israel march into battle against the Philistines. And they have this battle that goes on all day long. And by the end of the battle, 1 Samuel chapter 4, by the end of the battle, Israel got their tails kicked. And by the end of the battle, when they count up the casualties, there are 4,000 dead Israelite soldiers on the battlefield. 
It's a, it was a rout. It was devastating. And, they, and the leaders and the generals gathered back in the camp that night. In those days, you fought during the day, and then when the sun went down, everybody went back and ordered dominoes and did whatever they did, and, and then they would meet again on the battleground the next day. So when they gathered back for their discussion of how the battle went, everybody is mad, everybody is devastated, everybody is weeping. They had all lost friends, and they, and they gathered together and said, what in the world did we do wrong? What in the world happened? And they finally come to the conclusion, we went into battle without God. We should have brought the Ark of the Covenant. And so they send back to get the Ark of the Covenant and have some priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battleground. And when the, when the Ark enters into the camp of the Israelites, the shout of joy and adoration for God is so great in the camp that the earth trembles and the people on the other side go, what is going on in the Israelite camp? So they send a spy across to find out and he sees the box and he comes running back to his side and he goes, guys, we're toast, they got the box. This is, this is the God that did what he did to the Egyptians. You remember all the plagues and how the firstborn was killed and all of that? This mighty God is mightier than our gods and we are going to get killed in the battle tomorrow. But they have no choice, the battle is gonna happen. And so they, they march into battle the next day, the Philistines shaking in their boots and the Israelites cheering because they now have the ark as their good luck charm. And when they get into the battle that day, 30,000 of their men are killed. 4,000 the first day without the ark, 30,000 the second day. And not only that, but the priests who brought the ark are killed. And not only that, but the ark is stolen by the enemy and taken away. It was a horrible day. Now the Philistines are pagans. They worship many gods and each city has their own sort of deity that they have built a temple to and they worship. And they take it back, the ark, into their uh, city to the temple of their God, which is called Dagon. And they take it in to the temple of Dagon and they set it like a defeated offering at the feet of the idol that is in the temple. And they leave. They come back the next day and they find that the idol has fallen down on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they think, wow, I wonder what happened. Somebody must have snuck in. So they prop up their God. By the way, if you have to prop up your God, you might want to change God's. <laughs> so they prop up their God for the next day. When they come back in the next day, they find that once again he has fallen face first in front of the ark, and this time his head is broken off and his hands are broken off, and, and the symbolism is that this God of the Philistines is destroyed in the presence of the God of the Israelites, the one true God. And it gets worse for the Philistines. Not only has their God been broken, but on top of that, the people begin to get sick. And, and I don't want to gross anybody out, but I'll just tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that the people of that city were struck with terrible hemorrhoids. That doesn't put everyone in a good mood in town. 
and not only that, but there's an infestation of mice that just takes over across, and people are running from the mice, but they don't run so well because of the hemorrhoids, and it's not going well. And there's all this sickness, and people are dying, and it's pestilence, basically, for this city, and they're like, we gotta get rid of the box. And so they put the box on a cart and send it to another Philistine town and say, we have a gift for you, God bless you, right? <laughs> And when it gets to that town, those people are struck with hemorrhoids and mice and all of that, and they don't know what to do. So eventually they just put it on a cart, tie it to a couple of cows, point the cows in that direction toward Israel and go, get out of here. They take off with the cart and they go straight back to Israel and they stop when they get to this little town just the other side of the border, which is called Kiriath-Jerim. And sometime later... After the ark has been in Kiriath-Jerim, David takes a large group of people to go and get the ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. And they have this parade celebrating the return of the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. And they get to within nine miles of Jerusalem and they're moving right along and the, and the ark is on a cart, which by the way is not the way the ark is supposed to be moved. It's supposed to be carried on poles by priests and it's on the cart and they're just taking it and the cart hits a bump and the ark goes like this and they freak out. Like imagine your, your mother's prize antique vase and somebody bumps the table and the vase goes like this and you're diving to catch it. That's what happens with the ark. It gets sort of upset and it begins to fall. And this guy named Uzzah reaches out and grabs it so it doesn't fall. And the moment he touches it, he's struck dead by God for touching the ark. Yikes. David is so upset by this that he says, forget it, leave it here. We're done with this. And he leaves the ark there and it's at the home of a guy named Obed-Edom. And God begins to bless everything in the house of Obed-Edom. All of his um, uh, crops are producing, all of his animals are producing, there's wealth being poured into his house, children are being born, amazing things. God's blessing is evident on the home of Obed-Edom. And David goes, we gotta get the ark back to Jerusalem. And so he sends another group of people and leads them to go and get the ark. And you're thinking, are we ever going to get to the Bible? Yes, open to 2 Samuel. It's in your Old Testament. I'm going to give you a great hint. It's right after 1 Samuel. Some of you Bible scholars knew that. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're just going to pick it up mid-story. I told you all the background here. We're going to pick it up mid-story in verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that uh, when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Okay, I looked it up. The house of Obed-Edom, that land is nine miles from where it's going to in Jerusalem or the city of David. Nine miles. The average full-size man takes a stride of about one yard. So I did the math. Every six steps, which is to say about every 18 feet, they stop 
and sacrifice two animals in praise to God. And then they pick it up and go another six steps and stop and sacrifice two animals in worship of God and another six steps and so on and so on and so on for nine miles. They sacrificed over 10,000 animals. How long did it take to do this? It must have taken many days to go nine miles when you stop every six steps to have a worship service and sacrifice animals. And that is exactly what they did for the entire nine miles. It was a mobile worship celebration that must have gone on for days. But their approach to worship went way beyond the animal sacrifice. Pick it up in verse 14. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and uh, the sound of a trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, I, we could pronounce her name Michael, Michael, Michal, Michal, or whatever. I'm going to call her Michael, even though you're going, wait, that's a boy's name. I don't care. It's easier for me to say it. That's what we're going to say. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, who is David's wife, by the way, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David had returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out and met David and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me a ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, or as the NIV says, I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. All right. Now, I told you the worship was weird in those days, right? Very different. Every six paces and they're killing animals, right? The blood sacrifice, remember we talked about this. It's the blood sacrifice, not that atones for sin. It is the blood sacrifice that points us to Jesus who would one day atone for sin once and for all. And so, so much of Israel's worship is built around this idea of the sacrifice of animals. So they're sacrificing all these animals and they're worshiping and rejoicing. And finally, as they come into town, you could picture the people lining the streets for the parade. The ark of God, after all this time, is coming back into Jerusalem where it can be the center of their worship again. And everybody is worshiping. And David is out in front of the parade. He's the king. But he has thrown his crown off. He has taken his robes off. And he is dancing in his underwear. 
and he is bouncing and jumping around and, and doing backflips and, you know, splits or whatever he was doing. And his wife is looking out the window and she's like, this is humiliating. He's supposed to be the king. He's acting like a little kid. And so all of this is happening. It's quite a spectacle, and there is a lot to unpack here and not nearly enough time to do it, but let me just take a break from the passage for one second. Now, with that as our background, let me ask you a question. What do you get that excited about? What does it take to get you to, like, jump up and down and shout? What is it that thrills your heart to that degree? Is it when your team wins a big game? That's what it is for me. Is it... Is it uh, the semi-annual sale at Nordstrom's? Is it free tickets to Disneyland? Is it when you win the lottery, which can almost afford tickets to Disneyland? What is it? What is it that you're just so excited? What would it take to make you celebrate like that? Like somebody who might watch you do it would say, you know what, that's just undignified. And then let me ask you this, do you celebrate Jesus like that? Something to think about. It's possible, isn't it guys, that we may have become too comfortable with God's presence in our own lives, that we're just used to it. When when Uzzah, the guy who was killed for reaching out to touch the ark, The scripture doesn't say he was killed for touching the ark. The scripture says he was killed for his irreverence. It was was, was, somehow this lack of respect for God that, that treated this holy symbol as if it was just another thing. Friends, let's not forget who it is we're worshiping. And, and as, we, as we appreciate and are thankful for, for Jesus, the, the infant in the manger, as we picture Jesus, the suffering servant on the cross, as we see Jesus bending down and washing feet, as we see Jesus laughing with his friends throughout the gospels, and as we look at the scripture and it says that he is our friend, let us be careful that we don't go so far in our casual thinking about God as to stop seeing his presence in our lives as a reason for extreme celebration. Michael was embarrassed because her husband was willing to look foolish in front of the people. You know, the fear of looking foolish in front of people has probably, count, has probably kept countless people from encountering God. I just don't want to look stupid. It's a reason some people know that God wants them to get baptized after they come to know Christ, but they don't want to get baptized. My hair's going to get all messed up. I look terrible if I'm wet, and what am I, I don't want everybody looking at me. And it's the reason that some people would say, you know what, uh, singing is just not my thing. I don't have a good singing voice, and so when everybody is singing praise to God, I'm just going to sit quietly and watch. It's the, it's the reason why some of us feel compelled to just lift our hands to God, but we don't want to look stupid, and so we don't do that. It's the reason why some of us don't give sacrificially and live below our means in order to support ministry, because we don't want people going, what are you doing with your money? 
It's the reason that a lot of us don't go into the mission field. Our parents would never understand that sort of a thing. It's the reason that some of us never share our faith with anybody who doesn't know Jesus. But here's the deal. If you're so self-conscious that you're unwilling to look foolish for the glory of God, then you are foolish. Michael, David's wife, she didn't look foolish that day, but she missed God. See, this story, by the way, is not about whether dancing is an appropriate form of worship. If you think that's the point of the story, you have missed the entire point. This story is about the difference between the worship of God and the worship of self. It's about the tragedy of caring what others think about you more than you care what God knows about you. It's, It's about whether you're living for the approval of others or whether you're living for the glory of God. It's about the difference between spectators and worshipers. Um, my daughter Kimmy is here this weekend visiting with her family and, and I was thinking about this and so I just like sandwiched this into my message today because, you know, if you're a preacher's kid and you don't get mentioned in the sermon, it's depressing. <laughs> so I was thinking about this, this time when Kimmy was maybe, maybe 10 and um, we went to a wedding, and our whole family was there at this wedding, and it was a wedding reception with music and dancing and celebration and food, you know, a wedding. And uh, Kimmy is the dancer in our family. She's this magnificently gifted dancer who's like dedicated herself from childhood up to becoming a great dancer. She had a, she had a bunch of injuries and surgeries to her legs which curtailed her dancing. And so what did she do? She became a dance teacher and a choreographer. Like dance is her thing and she is good at it. And she's 10 and she's out on that floor and she's like, you know, doing whatever kind of dancing you do. And I'm looking at her and she looks at me and we make eye contact because I'm sitting there like there's food. (laughs) I'm sitting there at the table watching my daughter out there and and she makes eye contact with me and, and she didn't say anything, but I knew what she meant. And she meant, I wish you would come and dance with me. Now, this is going to shock you, but I ain't much of a dancer. <laughs> to say that I ain't much of a dancer is a major understatement. I look like a moron every time I even try to move. The only thing I could do is that dad overbite. You know, I could do that. And my kids go, dad, stop it with that. Right? Right? That's my dancing skill. And my daughter, this beautiful dancer, is out on the floor wanting to dance with her dad. And I'm thinking, can I just go to the bathroom? And then I remembered, it's my daughter. I don't want to pass this opportunity up. And I went out on the floor and I danced with my daughter. And to this day, I choke up thinking about the joy of it. And and you know what's interesting? I look like an idiot. I have two left feet and I don't know what I'm doing and all that kind of stuff, but you think my daughter cared? And you know what else? When I came back to the table, nobody said, what are you doing out there dancing? You look terrible. You, you know, you should never do that. 
They said, oh, it was just so beautiful to watch you dance with your daughter. Guys, sometimes when it comes to our connection with God, it is the fear of looking foolish that cements our foolishness. Noah looked foolish building a boat in the middle of the desert. Sarah looked foolish shopping in the maternity uh, section at the age of 90. And people said, oh, do you have like a great granddaughter who's pregnant? She goes, no, these are for me. Imagine how foolish David looked when he marched into battle against Goliath, a mighty warrior. Imagine how foolish Peter looked to his peers when he got out of the boat and tried to walk on water, which, by the way, is a Jesus thing, not a Peter thing. And he gets out of the boat and tries to walk on water and sinks, and Jesus has to save him. How foolish do you think he looked? I don't know how foolish he looked, but I know this. He walked on water with Jesus, and you didn't. Jesus looked foolish on that first Good Friday, hanging bloody and naked on a cross. It just makes me wonder how many times I've missed a chance to encounter God and bring Him glory simply because I was unwilling to look foolish. David looked foolish in this parade because he was so excited about the presence of God among his people. But here's a word to the wise. Just because you get excited about the presence of God, don't expect everybody around you to understand your level of excitement because it won't happen. You know, David's wife, Michael, she had a point. This was pretty undignified. For David to do this, it just was politically unwise Everybody knew David. They knew he had no business being a king. He didn't come from a royal line. He had no training. He had no pedigree. He had no background in this. He's this young king who used to be a shepherd. And it's his crown and his royal robes and his entourage which give him his dignity and his sense of power and all of that kind of stuff. And so here's David who, who, had, who had put his identity sort of in God but his wife thought his identity was in his robes and his crown. Michael thought that was the source of his identity and his security. But David knew better all along. If you read the Psalms, David says it in a lot of different ways. He says, the Lord is my refuge. He says, the Lord is my strength. He says, the Lord is my shield. He says, the Lord is my strong tower. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my song. David's dignity didn't come from those robes. It came from God. And by the way, that's where your dignity comes from too. Made in the image of God. And by the way, if this undignified form of worship that we see David doing here makes you uncomfortable, you're not going to like heaven. I just want to read this to you. You can turn with me. It's in the book of Revelation, all the way at the back of your Bible. Go to Revelation chapter 4. And I don't have a lot of time. I just want to read this to you so you get a sense of what this looks like in heaven. 
Revelation chapter four, verse one. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature was like a calf and the third creature had the face like a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of you, They existed and were created. What a picture. Guys, that's what's happening in heaven right now. Even those 24 thrones around the, around the throne of Jesus, like the you know, Bible scholars are like, man, who are those thrones for? And everybody's got an opinion. The most common opinion is these are the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the, and the 12 apostles. And they, and they the, the, those who represent all of the leadership of the people of God for all time wear crowns and have thrones and they get off their thrones and fall on their face and toss their crowns away because they are in the presence of the one who was and who is and who is to come. That's what's happening in heaven. That's worship. Guys, Jesus is not impressed with our crowns and robes. Jesus blasted the Pharisees because they thought if I just have the right robes and the right hat and and if my clothes are just clean enough and if I have all the symbols of righteousness on the outside, then I must be righteous. And Jesus said, you're dead on the inside. And yet, Jesus commended the woman of lowly reputation who crashed a party that she didn't belong at and broke a vase of costly perfume and poured it out on his feet in extravagant worship. I love David's response to his wife's criticism. We already read it. He says in verse 21, I will be more lightly esteemed than this. I will be even more undignified than this. One of the main Hebrew words in the Bible for worship is the word halal, from which we get the word hallelujah. It literally means clamorously foolish. 
If you aren't willing to look foolish to those who understand, you don't really engage in worship. I mean, think about singing to someone who's invisible. If you walked in and saw your kid do that, you would sit him down and have a talk about what's real and what isn't real. Imagine lifting your hands to someone you cannot touch. I have a staunch atheist friend and he laughs at me for worshiping what he calls an invisible fairy in the sky. It looks foolish. <laughs> Have you ever come up to a red light and you look at the guy in the car next to you and he's like rocking out and dancing? <laughs> you just always laugh, right? It's the stupidest looking thing. You know why it looks so stupid? Because you can't hear the music. Because you can't hear the music. The Bible says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Of course we look foolish to them. They can't hear the music. We need to think of spiritual maturity as a continuum with, with self-consciousness on one side and God-consciousness on the extreme other side. And that, and that the growth, spiritual growth, is as you go from being more and more self-conscious to being more and more God-conscious. That's spiritual maturity. Eugene Peterson said it this way, he said, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. I like that. That's why David did what he did. He worshiped God with his whole heart, his whole mind, his whole body. Michael, on the other hand, was content to be a spectator and a critic. And I get that, I really do. When I go on vacation, uh, if I'm gone for a weekend, I, we always try to find a good Bible teaching church for us to visit and, and just be worshipers. And when you're the senior pastor of a church and you're always responsible for being up front and doing all the programming stuff, it is such a wonderful thing to just be able to go and just be a part of the group and just worship. So I always look forward to that. I, I wonder sometimes I drag my poor wife along like she's like, <laughs> we go to church every Sunday. Can we sleep in? No, she's not. But... But we go, and, and I go with this great intent, oh, I can't wait to just worship God without having to worry about anything that's going on. But I never do. You know what I do when I visit other churches? I evaluate and criticize. <laughs> like, ah, there's not enough parking here. But how come the greeters are dressed like that? Man, is it loud in here. These seats are uncomfortable. And then, God forbid, the poor preacher gets up. And he says something, and I, I just want to raise my hand and go, actually, you got that Greek word wrong. I find myself evaluating and criticizing. You know why? Because I'm a spectator. And God has not called us to be spectators. I'm there not to be a spectator or a critic, I'm there to be a clamorously foolish worshiper. So I ask you today, how's your worship going? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, the one who was and who is and who is 
to come. Doesn't he deserve your wholehearted worship and mine? Next week, we're going to talk more about what that looks like practically from Sunday to Saturday and how we can apply it in our lives. For now, let me ask you to stand, and I want to pray over you and ask God's blessing. God, we just want to say thank you on this day because we are not worthy, but you are so infinitely worthy. And those of us who are unworthy because of the blood of the lamb are invited into the throne room where there are people who who sit on thrones and wear crowns. We're invited into the throne room where there are creatures created for worship that are so amazing we can't even describe them. We're coming to the throne room where where you shine from your throne, Lord Jesus, where there's peals of thunder and and bolts of lightning and, and the awesomeness is overwhelming and you invite us into your throne room and say, I want to connect with you through worship. Help us, God, to be people who worship you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. For your glory and in your name we pray, amen.